pleasure for us to be here and have a discussion with you this evening. Uh, usually we run these podcasts as a, a more of a question and answer forum, uh, myself being a student and David being a teacher, both kind of literally and also in uh, uh, roles for the podcast. So <laughs> I will basically run that discussion as such, and I will hope to include any of your questions that you guys would like to put in the chat, either at the end or throughout, depending on how well they kind of fit into our narrative. So feel free to add questions in the chat as we go along. I'll, um, I'll be keeping note of them, rec recording them, making sure that we can get David to answer them, but uh, David is definitely the brains of this operation. So I, I won't, I won't talk for too long. I'll, I'll make sure that you can get to the quality content from him. But uh, Gabby asked us to talk about, I guess, um, some more societal based problems. Cause I know that you guys are often talking about the economics. So um, this is a, a bit of uh, slightly divergent, I guess, from the, the norm for you guys in some respect, but um, I guess I won't, dilly dally any further uh we've been asked to address one kind of focal question and we'll go from there thank you for joining me david as well thank you tim thank you gabby thank you Stephen, and thank you everyone david why do people appear to be listening to and following medical advice about covid19 but not taking action in response to the science concerning climate change a great question and it was the question that Gabby originally posed when she suggested that, you know, we come on and do one of these Monday night talks. And she'd found a great article in the guardian about this, where the journalist actually seemed perplexed as to why people were listening to advice and direction about COVID-19, but not responding to all the science we have and doing anything about climate change. And I remember reading the Guardian article and just going, the guy doesn't understand people. Oh, okay, that's important then. So really what we need to explain is what you need to do to get people to take action. So essentially our question is a way in to understand how you not force, but how you encourage political action. And that if it doesn't happen soon enough, it moves beyond encouragement to maybe being forced. So particularly relevant to this question of why we will respond to medical advice or direction from politicians is simply the fact of proximity. If something is immediate in temporal terms or spatial terms, if it's going to happen to you right now, right where you are, you will respond to it really quickly and really effectively. Historically, incredibly useful for our species. If we looked at our species has pretty much had its current brain for 200,000 years is the current estimate for a minimum of 200,000 years responding immediately to the grass moving in a funny way on the savannah or the tree branch moving in a funny way where you saw a leopard yesterday kept you alive. So historically we built up a both a desire and a habituation to respond instantly to the immediate and it also grew a negativity bias in it. So by assuming the worst and acting on it, if something was immediate, we almost guaranteed that we would survive. And the person who survives with negativity bias and an immediate response to the, the temporal and the spatial that's right near them lives. Whereas if we look at climate science, on the other hand, we have a lot of hyper rational people, very, very clever scientists, rationally laying evidence out as if we're going to be rational about the evidence. Now, those of us who choose to be rational can read the evidence and go, wow, we really should act on this. But historically, it's not tapping in to the visceral response that normally comes from things being imminent threat. And the language is rational rather than emotional. Whereas if we start talking about the leopard in the tree or the terrible thing that's about to happen, or the car crash we just saw, inevitably our language will be predominantly emotional and only rational later once we calm down. So to assume that we would respond well uh, to climate change is to essentially go against human nature. David, uh, a lot of the medical advice is also directly aimed at us. Uh, scientific conclusions about climate change or about the world. 
are, are we finding that our response and, and, and the proximity kind of response is because the medical advice is directly aimed at us, well, I guess, on a personal level? Yeah. We can assume that it's directly aimed at us because that's what society has established as you know, our social norm. So we can really look at you know, how we've been taught to listen to advice or direction in two ways. So, you know, the classical example, and some of you would have studied this at university, some of you will have read it for fun. Uh, there's not much fun in reading Michel Foucault, but the idea that our behaviour is normalised and we're taught to self-regulate. Rather than disciplining us through violence or rather than disciplining us through, you know, someone having to walk right behind us, society for 200 years in the developed world has been working to internalise as many norms about good behavior and socially appropriate behavior as it possibly can. So if we look back to the creation of the modern factory, the modern school, you know, one was meant to make a product. Well, they're both meant to make products. Factories making physical products, uh, schools making social products. But in both cases, the same thing is happening. You're trying to alter the behavior of the people that enter the institution. And as medical science developed, uh, you also get the development of public hygiene and sort of socially responsible behaviour in relation to things that can end in medical problems. So ironically, even though doctors are meant to work for the good of the patient, the medical profession as a whole has become a very big part of this process of normalisation, where society says this is how we want you to behave, society says this is what we want you to do under particular circumstances. And over time, we reward you following the advice and we punish you if you don't. So the classic example where Foucault originally wrote about factories and schools to explain self-regulation, uh, he later wrote about the creation of, of madness, of insanity, and largely viewed it as, in a lot of ways, it was a political tool. If you couldn't control someone, you labelled them mentally defective. It wasn't about really whether they had a mental illness. It was about you need to exclude them from society, diminish them in the standing of the rest of the society so they can more easily be controlled. So if on one hand we have the Foucauldian model of teaching us who to listen to and teaching us how to behave, which is still essentially at the core of our education system and our economy, on the other side, we kind of have the Gramscian model of hegemonic power. You know, whereas Foucault was a French postmodern philosopher writing in the 1970s and 1980s, Gramsci was an Italian Marxist writing in the 1920s and 1930s until his death. And his argument being no state has enough practical physical power to be able to use it directly on all of us. So instead, the most effective tool is to co-opt us. If you behave, you get a prize. If you behave, you get a lollipop. And the part of hegemonic power is making it clear who you should listen to because the people whose messages are worth listening to have social status, have privilege, and genuinely have more resources than you. So if we look politicians and doctors in both cases, we're meant to listen to because they have social status, uh, they have more economic resources, they have more social clout. It is in our interest to listen to what they say and have their approval because that way we get closer to power and resources. So if you put the Foucauldian model and the Gramscian model together, it's easy to take advice from doctors and politicians at the same time when they're giving us advice about something that is close to us and is potentially going to kill us. It's almost a perfect triangle of influences plus, you know, how our fear response works, rolled into one very effective way to control and manage a population. So we seem to be compliant, I guess, to some kind of medical advice and political advice, and, and maybe that's due to like ethos, I guess, that ethos argument about you know, listening to authority, I guess. Mm. Uh, and we could delve into that a little bit further, but uh, I, might, I might move on a little bit. Um, I guess action on climate change, this might address some of the questions coming through on the chat, but action on climate change is, is complex, uh, where yeah. medical advice doesn't seem to be. No, because of imminent threat has an immediate impact. Whereas part of the problem with climate, it becomes a multi, 
a multi-part problem. Our politicians aren't telling us to be afraid and do something. So at a hegemonic level, we're not getting primed or triggered to respond. Uh, people who are given authority to tell us what we should do for our well-being, i.e. doctors, aren't telling us to do anything about climate change. So the two groups that we would listen to about a pandemic, neither group is saying anything about climate change. Scientists may be interesting, and those of us who want to be rational will read and listen and will want to act. But the social and political primers aren't there. On top of that, if we add complexity into that mix, that if we look at the advice on COVID-19, it's very simple. Social distancing, if you feel sick, stay home. If you've got the symptoms, test it. It's really simple to follow the rules of this thing that is a proximal threat. Here is what you need to do to avoid the proximal threat. Whereas the minute we move into climate change, we have a multitude of data. It changes regularly. The point at which it becomes, you know, um, an irreconcilable situation of doom and gloom, you know, is unclear. The dates get closer, then further back, then closer, then further back. So for the average person who is conditioned to being given direction, they're getting unclear messages from people they wouldn't normally listen to and who they wouldn't normally follow their advice. And in the main, what we see with complexity historically, and a great example of this is sort of Rebecca Costa's book, The Watchman Rattle. And The Watchman's Rattle is all about the fact that throughout human history, multiple societies have hit a problem too complex for their thinking tools, too complex for their political, religious, you know, uh, military, whatever elite was running it at the time, to give them new messages because the elite didn't think of new messages and the elite didn't issue new messages. So, you know, historically societies, when they hit sort of intellectual overload, the point where they can't rationalize the problem, uh, tend to break, which is, you know, doesn't bode well for us if we use those strict historical things, you know, from the pre-World War II period. There's been a few questions in the chat that broadly talk about a lack of leadership on this subject, particularly. Um, and I guess it kind of broader questions about how there's been lots of study into leadership and not so much into why people uh, submit to it, I guess. And I guess we've addressed some of those things, but um, I guess a particular question is that uh, politicians seem to have rejected science on the basis of uh, climate change and now embraced it in, in this current crisis. Um, and perhaps that's because they had no other choice, but uh, if you could elaborate on maybe why that is, if it's just down to the neoliberal kind of framework. No, it, it's probably getting to even more fundamental stuff that essentially politicians principal skill is to read the emotions of the group and manipulate them. A reasoned argument has no place until and after they've worked out the emotional state of the group. So if they recognize that the group are not on the same page emotionally in relation, you know, relation to an issue like climate change, that there is division, then they don't need to act on it. In terms of something like a pandemic where their own proximity alarm has gone off that they could personally die and they see that the group has that same focus, taking action is infinitely easier. You don't need leadership when fear kicks in. Yeah? Managers can respond to fear. You know, leaders need to do something more profound than that. I don't think really we've had politicians who've been leaders for decades. And we've had managers. John Ralston Saul has written more eloquently on this than anybody that really since the mid-1990s, we've had a managerial elite whose aim is to refine yesterday. There is no interest in improving tomorrow. Having said that, climate, climate change is an ap apocalyptic catastrophe for some, let's say, you know, leaders of the Greens perhaps, but um, not for others, uh, in, in, including you know, uh, multinationals and, and, of course, some politicians uh, as well. 
why why doesn't it resonate with, with everyone i guess this is another interesting thing about how fear works if we look throughout history um humans are fantastic at catastrophizing we've done it multiple times in human history the biggest two examples are the Christian world in Europe believing that the world was going to end in the year 1000. And that was at all levels of society within Christian Europe. And the lead up to Y2K of going, it was going to be technical Armageddon. Now, the only thing that broke in Australia 2K was ticket readers on public transport in Tasmania. It's the only meaningful bit of technology that failed. And yet we still catastrophized. And this is part of the problem with climate change is, you know, I absolutely believe the science that we are in a world of trouble. But the problem is it's reading like one of our historical moments of catastrophization. And when we've had these moments, they've perhaps led to the fall of a society. But that's the biggest thing we can grasp. Anything bigger than that, Time-wise is too long in terms of you know, spatial issues. It's too big and encompasses too many places. So we're in the difficult situation that once again, our own history has primed us to enjoy the idea of doomsday as something to angst over, but also to really struggle to work out what it means and take it seriously. There's been a question in the chat about uh, Greenland who seem to be almost celebrating uh, the warming that they're experiencing in their country. Um, so this is almost a, a perfect counter uh, uh, example of someone not just ignoring fear or not having any fear, but almost celebrating the very catastrophe that, that uh, I guess we're here to address. Well, let's make the proximity argument on this. They had zillions of dollars worth of resources locked up under ice that they couldn't get to. And in a period of time, if they set up an appropriate sovereign wealth fund, they will probably be the richest citizens in the world with enough money to theoretically adapt or move. So again, if we look at the spatial and time thing, their short-term thing is their lives are getting easier. Can they conceive of the long-term? Can they encompass the entire globe? Do they even want to? So we get interesting questions here that, yes, people can stop and reason, but if the priming you're getting is that in the very short term, your life is going to get better because the ice melts, that you're going to be rich and you're going to have the freedom instead of living in the cold and struggling to be able to take your $100 million and go live in the warm. Personally, that's very persuasive unless you can be convinced to sit down and reason out yeah, but think about it. Once your ice melts, what else melts? What is the consequence for hundreds of millions of people once ice is melting at that rate? This is a strange thing with empathy. Uh, sort of Benedict Anderson's idea of imagined communities, that if we all read the same book, read the same language, consume the same media, we can get a shared sense of we're in this together. Now, in the early to mid-1980s, there was a film on nuclear war called The Day After or The Morning After, can't remember which, that scared the crap out of most of the English-speaking world on the same night worldwide. Immensely powerful for spreading the anti-nuclear message. There's been no, I don't think, equivalent thing on climate change that stops people dead on the same night in the same way and spreads the empathy it wouldn't just happen to me, it would happen to that person and that person and that person. And that's the kind of thing we would need, I think, for the population of Greenland to not actually see what's happening at a very base level as an opportunity. Gabby made a good point about the bushfires that we experienced uh, over the summer and how they've basically just been forgotten now. That Precisely. It was no a big problem. enough drama that we, you know, we, how many progressive, enlightened people thought that that might have been just big enough, just horrible enough to cause deep social reflection that would lead to deep political reflection that would lead to transformation in policy that would affect people's lives, the economy and the environment. 
And then we got COVID. So you see the attention span I'm talking about here, the issue of proximity. Another point was made about how this particular crisis, the COVID crisis, uh, was out of nowhere. And because of that, it was not influenced or hijacked by multinationals or, or corporate agendas or, or, let's say, evil. <laughs> uh, so by comparison to climate change, we seem to have responded immediately to this. Have we always responded to pandemics in this way? Um, that you know, becomes a really interesting question because pandemics historically didn't move very fast. So the first one we have good evidence on is, you know, the Black Death getting to Europe in basically 1349. But it had taken a minimum of six years to creep from Mongolia to England. So the stories of it were far ahead of the the disease. So the rate at which people learned you know, what it was going to be like, there were stories it was going to be terrible before things arrived. And, you know, because it so often was a case of either, you know, a caravan arrived on the Silk Road or a ship arrived and then people who were on the caravan got sick and then the people who encountered them in the harbour or the port or the trading part of the city got sick and you watched the sort of conflagration unfold. What's fascinating with 1349 when the pandemic, you know, uh, when the Black Death finally gets to England is between 1349 and 1353, it probably killed 50% of the population of England. It had such a profound impact that for the first time ever, the British Crown did a law to affect the economy to shape society. So many people had died that labourers could charge what they liked for their services. And the Crown actually passed a law that said, you can only charge this much because we need to maintain social stability. Now, this was not the social stability of lifting up the poor. This was the social stability of not breaking the aristocracy's wealth. But nonetheless, it's the first point where we see an intervention in a pandemic where we have evidence for things are so bad that both the social and the economical are going to be destabilised. An intervention is taken in the social to affect the economic and the economic to affect the social. And that becomes sort of the hallmark of pandemics as we move forward. So if we take a big leap forward and we get through to sort of say 1665, you know, the plague's going through the UK again, fire of London, devastating, but relatively speaking, 5% of the population die, not 50%. Multiple villages and towns by this point know how to isolate. They're gradually learning and they've accepted that in times of crisis, more and more social and economic control over the population is acceptable. And one of the really interesting things when the Black Death is going through Europe and particularly in England is people are so terrified that when they die, no one will bury them. And they come together and they form organisations where everyone chips in a little bit of money and agrees whoever of us is still alive will organise for everyone else to be buried. So you get the beginning of collective action that is both social and economic. And this rolls through in all sorts of really interesting ways. So, you know, Black Death eventually slows down. And like most pandemics, and this is a really critical thing, over time, the bacteria or the virus tends to get weaker because if it's too effective at killing people, uh, the hosts all die and the pathogen dies with them. So by the 19th century, we have the beginning of the pandemics that help us understand what we might go through now. So the first one in the first half of the 19th century is cholera. Cholera is waterborne. It happens because of the combination of industrialization, urbanization, and globalization. So it really is a slow version of what we see now with COVID-19. 
The interesting thing with this is it then means that for economic reasons, you need your workforce alive. For social reasons, you need your population not to riot and go crazy. So suddenly it becomes necessary for politics to change and spend money on providing clean water and to start thinking about public hygiene. So the, starts, the state starts intervening in things it historically hasn't. You get the beginning of the first fever hospitals. From the middle of the 19th century to the late 19th century, we move from cholera to typhoid. Typhoid, in order to control it, we have to start having the debate about having complex sewage and sanitation systems. So rather than having individual cesspits or a cesspit at the end of the street or you know, a local set of cesspits for a few blocks in a city, we need at least uh, an urban sewage management plan, if not one for multiple you know, towns, uh, boroughs, cities. So we get the beginning of politics having to take more responsibility for providing both a safe social environment so that people don't write and do crazy things, but also that you keep your workers for your factory alive. So much like in 1349, where the Crown takes action because society and the economy have both been destabilised, we get more government intervention in the 19th century when it's seen that social and economic things are going to collapse at the same time because of pandemics. So the lesson really is with a pandemic that unless it's bad enough to destabilise the social and the economic, it really won't change politics. I mean, it's exactly, it's politics more broadly. I mean, we could draw other examples from this. This uh, phenomenon doesn't just explain our lacklustre approach to climate change, for instance. Um, Could you think of another example of a crisis that we fail to respond with the same, respond to with the same effective action as as COVID-19? Definitely. But I think at this point, probably one thing I just thought of, that's been a lot of negative in a row. Do people want a positive? Yes, that is coming. Uh, It's a lot in the chat that we've been talking very gloomily. (laughs) Right. Okay. We'll leave leave the negative to the end. Uh, No, no. You want want positive at the end. I'd like to finish on a high note, if that's okay. All right. right, We'll leave. Okay. Positive. Right. <laughs> so other things we haven't dealt with, um, probably best single book on this for people who are interested is a book by Richard Heinberg called The End of Growth. Uh, Tim and I had Richard on Blind Insights. We have a great episode with him. Basically, Richard is an expert on peak oil and because of peak oil, got interested in all the other things we aren't dealing with and came up with a litany. So peak oil we should have been using oil and coal to build wind turbines and solar panels while it was cheap enough to do so. You know, one of the most terrifying thing now, if you look at the cost of producing uh, the sort of machines for renewable energy is you can't yet make them using renewable energy. So it's something people don't tend to understand that if you want to make steel, you can't make steel using solar energy. You can't get a furnace hot enough using solar energy. So we have the difficult situation that we needed to be using uh, fossil fuels in order to do the transition and we'll probably still need to use them. So you know, Richard goes into you know, the consequences of all of that. He also looks at the fact that you know, until basically a decade ago, fertilizer moved around the world quite freely biggest producers, US and China. They've both now securitized fertilizer and without export permits, you can't move it because they realized uh, there's not as much of it left as there was. And if you control food production, you control the world. So they've basically become as brutal as each other uh, at putting licenses out for moving fertilizer around. Uh, which is you know, the reason for having localised food production and not relying on imported fertiliser. Because in the long run, fertiliser is going to get dearer and dearer as a means of well, either buy the cheap food produced in the US or China or produce your own more expensive food. The other thing he writes about is the fact that you know, we've really hit a period where getting access to rare earth elements is incredibly problematic. 
You know, a lot of manufacturing is done in China, not because of the cost of labor, but because the Chinese have the rare earth elements. The Chinese are willing to do the incredibly polluting processing of rare earth elements. And if you buy their rare earth elements, you buy them more cheaply if you also make the product in China. The Americans thankfully have started to respond to this and have spent a billion dollars on improving rare earth element processing. Uh, Australia is finally starting to do basic processing on its rare earth elements. And if we're lucky, we will send all our partially processed rare earth to the US to go through the new, much cleaner process that's being done there. So that one we might be able to solve. Uh, he also talked about the fact we're at peak debt. And interestingly, you know, he kind of gets debt you know, better than a lot of traditional economists. The debt that really worries him is household debt. He said the reality is that household debt is so extreme in most developed countries now that people don't have the money to deal with these other problems when these things start costing, you know, everything costs more because of these other problems. David, I'm just going to, since we've kind of talked about the global stage for a second, I'm just going to bring up uh, Tim's question, uh, which is specifically about Vietnam. Uh, and then we'll move on to how we can counteract this with uh, action, which is what this group is all about. Yep. But, um, before that, uh, Tim says, living in Vietnam, I've seen very different reactions to both the COVID outbreak and the climate crisis. The response to the COVID was immediate and exact. Having the governmental system that it does, it had the perfect toolkit to respond. There has been no response to climate change because the government cannot afford to act on it. Precisely. Or so they think, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, cheap energy and labor are the basis of this economy. Yep. It seems to me that there are real structural problems inherent in most modern government systems that make political costs taking real action way too high. Yeah. So Vietnam's a great example because Vietnam's history is of existential threat. An existential threat is critically. The minute you can call something an existential threat, you'll take meaningful action. Vietnam's history of you know, the Japanese in World War II, the war with the French, the war with the Americans, uh, its war with China, uh, invading Cambodia to save the Cambodians from the Khmer Rouge. Vietnam is so accustomed to existential threat that it always maintains its state and society to be mobilized if something can be deemed an existential threat. Unfortunately, when what you have at your disposable is motivated people who will work very hard but don't necessarily have a lot of resources, you know, an existential threat like a virus, that's immediate, the proximity thing again, they will act fantastically. Climate change, too far away. They need the money now to maintain their ability to respond to existential threat. China is still basically an existential threat to them. So they've got to remain focused on how do they maintain their military? How do they maintain their industrial base? How do they grow their industrial base? How do they increase their good relations with other countries? Because the better relations they have with other countries, the more leverage they have against potential existential threats. So climate change for them is not in the existential threat category. Despite the fact you, know, you have sea rise, you've got all sorts of other problems. All that can be managed through motivated people and is too far down the list to be called an existential threat. David, then I'd like to bring it back to Australia and I guess the point of uh, this meeting and, and this very group, which is, which is action, namely. Uh, as you said earlier, pandemics shine a light on, on what is wrong with our societies. And I guess my hope is that out of this, what has, what has shone a light on is perhaps um, Australia's failure with uh, sovereign capability or, or self-reliance uh, and independence. And perhaps we might change to a, a more autonomous model with producing things like uh, lithium batteries, et cetera, within Australia, as opposed to just exporting the lithium, which gives us a little bit more uh, say, I guess, in how green those processes are. So inadvertently, I think that there is some opportunity out of this crisis to, let's say, green up uh, some of uh, Australia's uh, economy and, and, and manufacturing and things like that, if we uh, are able to 
have it based here if we are able to manufacture more here we will have more say about our direct and indirect uh, contributions to climate change rather than um, basing it on what we do within the country and all of our manufacturing existing elsewhere and not counting that under our emissions let's say so that's one positive but oh absolutely what i'm going to ask uh, and this is a really broad question we might have to break it down but how can we as individuals act ourselves and uh, help uh, let's say make changes societally um, so that that people feel they have some impact on this i think let's go back to an example where we've very successfully dealt with an existential threat and elaborate probably from that towards what we can take from that lesson and move forward so you know the best example ever of responding incredibly well to an existential threat is world war ii you know britain and the us and the allies ability to respond you know, to Nazi Germany and Japan for democracies who'd been through the depression to work out how to be effective, how to put talented people in the right place, how to do most things in new ways. So if we look at sort of multiple parts of this, there's multiple examples in what's necessary to get something positive done. At the beginning of the war, we have a brilliant economist in John Maynard Keynes writes a pamphlet called How to Pay for the War that essentially transforms the economies of the UK and US for the duration of the war and for the reconstruction of Europe and Japan. So in the same way there was a new economics in 1939, we have the new economics. Did most people understand Keynes in that period? No. Yeah, uh, but enough people who needed to fund wars did. So the critical thing we need to do is make sure as many people as possible understand what we're doing is facing an existential threat. Because the minute the threat is defined as existential, you can start to change people's mind and targeting who you convince. In reality, if it's people that from a Foucauldian or Gramscian perspective are going to be listened to, if you can change their minds, that then becomes the most important mind to change because where you can persuade one person, they can persuade thousands. So the existential threat of COVID-19 is one of the things that's ambiguous at the moment. Maybe we're beating it, maybe we're not. It's clearly providing a big enough threat to society and the economy that if it goes on for any length of time, it fits the historical model of politics needing to change in order to do what's necessary to restabilize both the social and the economic. So when we're talking about, you know, the problems we face, we need to make the point of how interconnected the social and the economic are, you know, and make the point that historically we can see all this has been done before in the 19th century. I think a really important thing here is persuading progressives who think about the future is relatively easy because progressives by their very nature, we want to improve the future. The problem is conservatives. Conservatives just want their best yesterday back. And if you're telling them how amazing the future can be, you're not speaking a language that has any impact on them. Whereas if you can say to conservatives, here's a historical precedent of an event like we're going through and that the government of the day stepped in and achieved these remarkable things. So all you would be doing is grabbing at a great example of humans achieving wonderful things. So don't try and convince conservatives that you know, MMT is a tool that they can use to improve the world. Convince them that historically Churchill used a radical economic idea to fund World War II and rebuild Europe. Give them one of their own heroes. So one of the biggest thing we need to do as individuals is make sure we pitch our message to persuade people in the way that taps into their underlying worldview, whether they are predominantly looking backwards or forwards, whether they are dominated by fear and you have to solve their fear for them, 
or whether they're able to be rational and you can convince them with science. In a sense, until you understand whether people are looking backwards or forwards and whether they're dominated by fear or they're capable of using reason. You know, it's a bit like the episode of The Simpsons where Bart's talking to his dog and all the dog hears is blah, 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 blah. If you're talking to the audience in the way you would like to be talked to, you are quite possibly not being heard. And a wonderful example with World War II was the quality of the messaging to everybody. This is an existential threat. This is what we need to do. It's not what we want to do. It's what we need to do. This is how we're going to value talent. This is how we're going to value everyone's contribution. And the sophisticating of shaping the message to each group, depending on what they needed to hear. I mean, it's uh, inherently going to be difficult to, let's say, uh, appeal to those things if we are struggling with lackluster leadership, probably to say the least, anyway. So, I mean, that makes it, it makes it difficult, let's say, uh, since that might not even be directly effective. Um, well, the one thing I'd say at that point is if this does turn into something that can destabilise the social and the economic, Historically, that just about guarantees a change in politics. So the irony is, because this is quote-unquote unprecedented COVID-19, even though it isn't, you know, it's not really new, it's just a different pandemic. If we can start to conceive of this as a threat that can destabilise the social and the economic and then also explain in a similar way to people who've now grasped this with a disease, that climate change is not far behind. And one of the lovely things you can freak people out with is it's fascinating. First time plague hits Europe, 536, two volcanoes had exploded and made the world cool for three to five years, crop failures for three to five years. 1349 to 1352, they think probably something similar happened because England had three of its coldest winters in recorded history. So the irony is there's been link-ups with pandemics and climates in the past. And part of what made the Black Death so devastating in the 1350s was not just the people dying, but three years of crop failures from freezing winters. So we've got a parallel here. So if we combine the fact that we, are, we can't move around, we can't do things, the economy doesn't work properly, society is struggling, and also, as a consequence of everything that's going on, these things have to begin to be connected in ways, I would argue, the best way is to do it historically, because it gets through to people who get overwhelmed with the enormity of having to conceive that the new world has to be totally new. Don't ask them to conceive that the new world has to be totally new. Give them a precedent that can take some of their fear away and empower them to believe in the capacity of humans to change their own destiny. David, uh, there's been uh, a, a bit of debate about whether fear-mongering um, has been effective in the past. I mean, Al Gore's film was, you know, it's now 20 years old and that was effectively just, uh, let's, you know, 90 minutes straight of fear-mongering. Mm. Uh, I, we're we're wondering if there's anything else that we can do before it's too late. Uh, Phil mentioned uh, that basically basically populations will um, effectively equalize, and that that, that, that there will be um, a natural kickback to this, but it might be too late to sustain even our species, let alone any, anything resembling the life that we live right now. Tori in particular has uh, is is wondering whether there is anything we can do that uh, aside from fear mongering in terms of action before, so that we can address the issue before before it's too late. Again, I think that to return to an earlier point, the biggest thing is to articulate to people what you want them to understand in a way they will understand. If fear doesn't tend to work on conservatives, fear works on progressives. You know, proximity works on everybody. But Al Gore, the problem with the movie, it was looking into a future with no clear point in mind. You only went and saw an Al Gore movie if you were already progressive. 
Whereas if you look back at dealing with cholera and typhoid in the 19th century and transforming how cities were designed and how public hygiene was taught and how you know, local authorities and states funded fever hospitals and how they got on top of dealing with pandemics, you just see example after example of our ability to learn the new, become competent in the new and transform, you know, or essentially squalor into a marginally better environment. David, how can we stop companies, let's say, that should know better? Companies that at least have marketing campaigns that you know seem to be progressive, seem to be green, seem to be uh, cognizant of, of climate change, let's say. When once you kind of take off that veneer, they're, they're not being very productive on that front. How do we stop them valuing their economic gain? Um, or, or even if we want to look at the political side, if we, how do you stop people valuing conservative perspectives? Well, above this the, is an interesting thing with companies. Threat. And again, go back to the historical example. Between 1664, oh, sorry, 1764 and 1771, the East India Company essentially destroyed India. There was going to be a famine because of you know, the state of the climate in those few years anyway. But because they had moved food production into opium production, you ended up with, you know, again, no one knows the real number, but at least a million people dead. Now, the shareholders didn't care less. But once the stories of it got back to London, Parliament intervened because the horror of killing a million people to make money was too much, even for the political elite who were making money out of the East India Company. So, again, showing what corporations do. Here's the effects of what they do. You know, we can't persuade them to change their behaviour, but we can persuade people to not want to have shares in them or buy their products. You know, trying to directly alter corporations seems historically to not work particularly well. When a population decides they don't like what they do, how they do it, why they do it, that seems to be when society step away that companies naturally have problems because they lose their customer base, their support, and shareholders being willing to pour more money in. So I'm not sure in the short term um, you can improve a company in a nice way. You can just withdraw its oxygen, I think is probably the most powerful tool. Conscious capitalism, I suppose. Well, and this is a wonderful example. Yeah, Tim studied this when he did my complex problem solving course. There's an amazing movement in the US of the conscious capitalism movement. Companies who believe they want to do good while they're doing well. The initial survey of these companies was just before the GFC by Raj Sisodia in a book called Firms of Endearment. You know, companies like Southwest Airlines, probably the cleanest airline the world has ever seen. Now, the fascinating thing was, you know, he thought these companies, because they had lower profit margins, would be annihilated in the GFC. When he went back and did the second edition of the book, what he found is because their underlying premise was they would do good while they were doing well, they all grew during the GFC. It was their competitors who had normal bad corporate practices who went under because people didn't believe in what the company did. People kept supporting these companies with this conscious capitalism underpinning. And you know, the conscious capitalism movement continues to grow in the US. The cooperative companies movement in the US continues to grow. So in the land of the rabid individual, you know, the greedy entrepreneur, the irony is we have more medium-sized companies heading towards better models. Is it enough? No. But point out one good example for every bad one you attack so that people can move where they spend their money. David, we have to wrap up. Cognizant of time, yes. Yes. 
I want to pass it over to you, and this is going to be extremely difficult, and I'm putting it on you, absolutely. But um, this has been, I guess, in, in some respect, particularly dark. So uh, if you could surmise with something positive, um, I think we've talked about collective action on our podcast before, and this group is a perfect example of that. So um, if we could kind of complement this, and if we could kind of surmise, let's say, something positive to draw from the conversation, um, I would appreciate it. Yeah. The, the positive thing to take away from this is fear is totally predictable. The power of proximity is totally predictable. The way progressives look to improve the future, totally predictable. The way conservatives look to regain the ideal past, totally predictable. Your greatest power potentially as a group comes in from going, who are we trying to persuade today? How do we shape the message to work for their predilections on how they deal with fear, proximity, reason, emotion? Do they look forward? Do they look backward? The most powerful thing collectively we can do is not to just talk people like us who will understand progressive thought, but to work out how to explain what we're trying to achieve to people in language that makes sense and gets them on board at least in some small way that they could understand that the ultimate power is our ability to be flexible our ability to tailor what we say so that we get a better response from people you know it's like you walk around university and you meet the little marxists who are the most angry little ideological humans i think i've ever met even when I was studying Marxism in 1994, these 19-year-olds are infinitely more angry than we ever were. Can you have a reasoned argument with them? No. Because they don't want to be reasonable, they want to be angry. So if you can work out, well, what are they angry about? How do I speak to them in their own language? How do I get through? I think there's infinitely more power in that. As we see, we now have billionaires in America who are beginning to see the world has to change. And that's because people kept presenting ideas to them in ways they could comprehend. And I think that is the most powerful tool, you know, sophisticated people have worked together and messaged to get the desired outcome, understanding your audience. And if you're still feeling a little bit, uh, if that still feels a little bit dark, uh, my only thing that I could add is, I guess, uh, better the devil that you know. Um, so being able to name this monster and being able to define it is uh, infinitely powerful as well. But uh, alas, we do have to finish. I'm very, very sorry because uh, I couldn't address all of the questions that were coming through very thick and fast. I really appreciate everyone who commented. And uh, thank you guys for having us. And thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for your questions. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.